Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39, English Standard Version, ESV. Would you please turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come for the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so to the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the, the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you bestow us the wisdom and humility in hearing your word, so that we may apply it in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Regine, for reading scripture for us. Yeah, indeed, may, may God speak to us as we come to him, may his word be planted in our hearts as well. I think no doubt the coronavirus outbreak is on many of our minds. 
You know, the, the rise in the number of infections and deaths has been accompanied by a growing sense of fear and anxiety. I think, I think we're feeling the impact here in our church as well. I mean, I'm, I'm sure as you've come through the doors this morning, your temperature was checked and you had to fill up a contact form uh, before entering the building. You know, and most significantly, we've suspended food service after service. Now, we just have tea and coffee now. You know, the, the spread of COVID-19 has been accompanied by the spread of something else. It's led to a rising tide of uh, xenophobia around the world, the, the fear of strangers. You know, Chinese nationals around the world are facing more racism. You know, in, in one country, the hashtag, you know, hashtag Chinese don't come, has been trending on Twitter. And a recent Economist magazine article had this headline, The Pathogen of Prejudice. The Pathogen of Prejudice. And, and it says, the, sub, the subtitle in the headline says, The coronavirus spreads racism against and among ethnic Chinese. I, I don't know whether you've, you've felt this yourself as well. You know, if, if you go to a crowded place, uh, you, are, are you kind of standing a bit further away from people you don't know, especially when they speak Mandarin? You know, is there this fear or worry in our heart as well? You know, our, it's, a, it's a very apt time that we, we come to this passage in Luke 5 because our passage today is also about the pathogen of prejudice. Not due to physical illness, but due to the spiritual sickness of sin. And as we see how Jesus relates to the religious and the irreligious people in our passage today, he confronts our prejudices with his scandalous grace. So I, I pray that as we come to this text, we would allow Jesus to challenge us, to speak to our self-righteous pride, as well as challenge our self-confidence in religious traditions. Uh, so let, let's, let's think about this for a moment. I mean, we don't, we don't often think about grace as offensive. But I, I put it to us that grace is scandalous. I, I think we're often offended by grace more than we think. It's because by definition, Jesus' grace is so lavish, so completely undeserved. You know, and, and such free grace often offends our sense of fairness. You know, as a parent, I'm, I'm constantly reminded by my children how offensive and unfair grace is. <laughs> right, my, my, my one, boy, one, one of my sons will say to me, you know, how come my brother has more ice cream than I do? <laughs> you know, another, the, other, the other brother will say to me, how come, how come my brother can play on the iPad for two minutes longer than me? You know, it's so unfair. <laughs> Why do, you give this, this, uh, why, do you, why do you give my brother more than me? Right? I mean, that, that's the offense of grace. Right? We're scandalized by grace because we think we deserve it more than the person next to us. We deserve it more than others. You know, we like the idea of grace for ourselves, but do we really appreciate the idea of grace for others? Do we really believe that the vilest offender who truly believes from that moment a pardon from Jesus receives. 
You know, we, we like to believe that for ourselves, but do we believe that for other people? For sexual sinners? For loan sharks? For drug dealers? For murderers? Uh, let, let, let's, let's cut a bit closer to home. Do, do we believe that for the person who has so disappointed you this past week or this past month or, or even longer than that? Do we believe that for the person who has let you down? Do we believe that for the person who has sinned against you and hurt you so badly? Do we believe that to be true for them as well? Uh, that's, that's, that's where we begin to find grace so scandalous and offensive. Are we like the prophet Jonah who refused to preach to the people of Nineveh? Not because they were so bad, but because he didn't want God to be gracious to them. And in Luke's gospel itself, as we read in Luke chapter 15, are we like the older brother in the parable whose brother had come back in repentance and yet refused to celebrate, just refused to celebrate the return of his brother. Now, I think this is why we need to hear the message of this text. It, 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 it cuts to our heart as we think about grace. And so as we come to the text, may God humble our hearts and help us to see our sin, right? our own sin, not, not the sin of the people around us, but our own sin. As we see the depths of our own sin and the amazing heights of His scandalous grace towards poor, undeserving, wretched sinners like ourselves. So just two points for us to think about this morning as we work our way through these verses. Uh, number one, scandalous grace challenges our self-righteous pride. You know, our, our passage follows a series of incidents where Jesus draws near to people in need. Right? We've, we've seen how he calls Peter, who confesses his unworthiness. You know, Peter says to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 8. And Jesus cleanses the leper, someone who is ritually unclean. And that's in verse 13. And Jesus heals the paralyzed man. And not just healed him physically, but Jesus forgives his sins as well. Verse 24. You know, this series of stories tells us that Jesus draws near to those in need. Jesus draws near to sinners. And, and here in our passage, he sees Levi, a tax collector, sitting at the tax booth. You know, today it's respectable to work for Iris. You know, it's, it's a good job. People don't avoid you if you work for Iris. At least I hope they don't. <laughs> you know, but in Jesus' day, uh, tax collectors had a bad reputation. Because not only did tax collectors collect taxes for the Roman Empire, you know, the occupying nation, but many of them were also dishonest. Many tax collectors collected more than what they were supposed to, and tax collecting was another word for extortion. Right? You extorted money from people as a tax collector. Now, tax collectors was a bit like organized crime. Right? You know, people would pay for the opportunity to work as a tax collector because it was so lucrative. You know, it was a bit like a mafia and you tried to get in to that whole racket. Tax collectors were hated because they got rich off the misery of others. So, so, so think about this for a moment. You think about how scandalous it is that Jesus should actually go 
to a tax collector's place of work. You know, imagine visiting like a loan shark's office, you know, a place of business, right? And just kind of have, hanging out with him there. This is what Jesus is doing. He, he's going to Levi's tax booth. You know, no, he, he doesn't wait for Levi to come to him. He doesn't wait for Levi to make the first move. But, but Jesus goes to Levi and says to him, follow me. This is the call to discipleship. It's the call to be a disciple. Follow me. And, and Levi trusts and obeys. That's his response. He, he leaves everything. Right? Levi turns away from his dishonest way of life and he turns to follow Jesus. Right? Levi models for us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Someone who turns away from sin, repents, leaves everything and trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Someone who follows Jesus from that point on. Right? That, that's, the, that's what it means to be a disciple. You notice in our passage that Jesus didn't ask Levi to clean himself up first. He didn't say to Levi, hey, if, if you kind of do this first, then maybe you can be my disciple. No, Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. And he invites Levi to come to him in order to have his life changed. He doesn't say to Levi, change your life first, and then we can talk about you coming to me. No. Come to me, and then I will change your life. Grace saves us just as we are, but grace doesn't leave us just as we are. Grace transforms us. And this grace is free, but this grace is not cheap. And Levi went from being a dishonest tax collector and cheat to becoming one of Jesus' 12 apostles and a writer, the, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. So Levi and Matthew are the same person. And you notice how Levi left his job, but Levi still cares a lot about his former colleagues. You know, he, he may have become a follower of Jesus, but he doesn't shun his former co-workers. Right? So he invites them to this great feast in his home. I think it's a reminder to us that believing the gospel changes how we work and believing the gospel also changes how we treat the people at our work. And we don't see them as just merely colleagues anymore, but we are concerned about their souls. We are concerned about how they are really doing. And this is exactly what Levi does. He invites them, hey, come, why don't you come to my house, celebrate this thing that's happened to me, and then come and meet Jesus. Right? I'm going to invite Jesus too. Uh, just a couple of applications about evangelism from, from these verses. I think first, we are most motivated to speak of Jesus when we personally experience His grace. Right? I, mean, I mean, sometimes when we think about evangelism, we kind of think, yeah, you know, you've got to do that as a good Christian. We kind of think just in terms of, of duty. Maybe some of us feel guilty that we don't share the gospel more frequently. Uh, but, but I would say, I would put it to us that those are maybe not the best motivations for evangelism. But what, what really motivates us to speak of Jesus is when we ourselves experience His grace. And, and we know Him deep in our hearts and we, and we know how He has been gracious to us, so undeserved, so freely. And I think that when, when our hearts are, are, are captured 
by the joy of Christ, that is what moves us to speak of Jesus to others. So I, I think it's a good heart check for us that if, if we, we don't feel inclined to speak of Jesus, perhaps it's because our hearts have grown cold to His grace. Maybe the gospel seems far removed from us because it just doesn't, just doesn't occur to us how gracious He's been to us. If we are filled with the joy of Jesus, we will want to tell others about Him. The, the, the best way to grow in our evangelism is by growing to treasure Jesus more. It's not mere duty. It's a delight to speak of Jesus because we delight in Him. You know, second, I think the second thing about evangelism is that it, it, it's less of a program or an event. But, but just, think, just seeing how Levi kind of speaks of Jesus, it, it's more of a lifestyle of following Jesus that involves meaningfully sharing our lives with others. Right? That, that's what Levi is doing. He's, not, he's, not, you know, he's, he's inviting his friends to come to, to share in his new life, to share in his joy. He's not waiting for, for them to, to kind of ask him, but he's just inviting them. He's ready, he's, he's ready to go to them. And showing hospitality by sharing meals, which is what Levi is doing here, just, just having a meal and having people over and being hospitable to them. You know, that is a simple but powerful way of loving like Jesus. You know, I've, I've shared before the, the story of Rosaria Butterfield. I mean, some of you have read her, her books, uh, excellent writer. So Rosaria Butterfield, uh, it's, it's a familiar story. She, she was a former lesbian feminist, someone who was... Uh, just very, very actively involved in, in, in advancing LGBTQ causes. You know, she was a tenured professor at a liberal university, and, and that was you know, who she was. But then she had a neighbor, uh, this Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd, and Pastor Ken would invite Rosaria over to her home. And, you know, not, not to kind of, not, not to any program or, or, even, or even to evangelistic Bible study, but just to have meals in, in his home and just to have conversations over those meals. It's quite funny because uh, Rosera Butterfield talks about how the first time she was invited, she, she went prepared with all these arguments about why Christianity is not true. And then when she was invited in, I think the Pastor Ken and his wife just, just had regular conversations with her and then just completely disarmed her just made her lower her defenses. And she kept going back, you know, week after week, just meals with her neighbor. And, and this is what she says about that whole experience. You know, she says, I, I was loved and welcomed by a Christian community I mocked, despised, and rejected. It was in this context of hospitality, of just sharing a meal, that Ken, his pastor Ken, brought the church to me because it was impossible for me to get to the church without the bridge of somebody's home. You know, and, and then she goes on to talk about hospitality in, a, in, a, in an interview she did with a Christian magazine. And she says, hospitality is about meeting the stranger. It's the opposite of xenophobia, right? Hospitality is about meeting the stranger 
and welcoming that stranger to become a neighbour. And then knowing that neighbour well enough that if by God's power he allows for this, that neighbour becomes part of the family of God through repentance and belief. So she says hospitality has nothing to do with entertainment. I think which is how we often think about hospitality. Right? I think sometimes what prevents us from being hospitable is we think, oh, you know, my house is not very nice, uh, my house is not very big, uh, my house is very messy, you know, my cooking is not very good. You know, we, we kind of think of hospitality maybe more as entertainment, but I think that's not how we should think about it. Entertainment is about impressing, you know, Butterfield says, entertainment is about impressing people and keeping them at arm's length. Hospitality, on the other hand, is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are, uh, just as you are. And being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation, not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. And, and friends, we all, as God's people, we all have the opportunity to be hospitable. It doesn't have to be at your home, but you can share a meal. And, and over that meal, you can speak of Jesus. And you can enter someone else's life and really bring the grace of God to bear on that person's life in a very real way, in a very personal way, in a way that disarms them. And that's exactly what we see happening here with Levi and Jesus. But, you know, by, by eating and drinking with sinners, some people are upset. <laughs> right? Some people are upset with Jesus. But before that, let's, let's see what Jesus does. Right? Jesus enters their world to meet them where they are. And in doing so, Jesus shows compassion without compromise. Right? He welcomes sinners by calling them to repent and follow Him. And as Jesus' followers, we imitate our Lord by showing mercy and grace to others. Being salt and light means active engagement, not quarantine. Jesus by his example, shows us that following him doesn't mean retreating into a holy huddle. You know, I, th I think the best picture we have of this is the doctors among us, the doctors, the healthcare workers, the nurses who work among us. You know, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, they, they, are, they are the most informed about the dangers of disease. Right? If, if anyone knows about how dangerous disease is, it would be them. They know the effects, they know the symptoms, they, they know what it can do to you, and yet they are first in harm's way. I think that's a wonderful picture of what it means to be salt and light in the world. Right? We, friends, if, if, if we are followers of Jesus, we, we know the effects of sin. We, we are personally acquainted with how destructive sin can be. We've experienced it in our own lives. And because of this, not in spite of, but because of this, we are in the world. Because we want to help others. Because we want to keep them from pursuing this cause of sin. We're calling them to the only Savior. Just as we have been called to the only Savior. So if, you, if you're a medical professional, a healthcare worker, thank you for being first in harm's way. Thank you for not shying away from your responsibility to help others. And, and brothers and sisters, if, if we know of the effects of sin, 
we know of the grace of God, then let, let's put ourselves in this world where we can really speak of Jesus and not shy away from doing that. Be in the world, but not of it. Be distinct, but not separatist. You know, remember, we were once outsiders ourselves. You know, but of course, in, in doing all this, Jesus upsets the Pharisees. Right? The, the Pharisees were Jewish religious teachers who separated themselves from others in order to protect their religious purity. In fact, this is how they got their name. You know, Pharisee, the name Pharisee, comes from the Hebrew word for separated one. So by definition, they kept themselves separate. They, they practiced social distancing. And to them, sin was like a contagious virus and they would self-quarantine to avoid contamination. So they are scandalized that Jesus, who is supposed to be a religious teacher, who is supposed to be a rabbi, would intentionally associate with sinners. You know, and, and, and Jesus' answer to the Pharisees reveals what's in their hearts. Right? He says to them in verses 31 and 32, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in saying that to them, Jesus puts the finger right on the issue. He, he rightly identifies that the Pharisees' biggest problem is that they think they're okay. The, the Pharisees' biggest problem is not other people's sin. The Pharisees' biggest problem is they think they are without sin themselves. You know, the, the Pharisees are so proud of their own morality, that they're so proud of their own religion, that they're blind to their own need. They're blind to their own sin and their own need for forgiveness. And friends, that, that's what self-righteousness does to us. Self-righteousness blinds us. You know, and and self-righteousness blinds us to ourselves and makes us more judgmental and critical of others. And that's what's happening here with the Pharisees. You know, we, we often compare ourselves with others who appear sort of worse than us. You know, we, we make summary judgments of people based on what we can see of them without actually knowing them. Right? Uh, I, I think it's easy to assume something about a person's spiritual condition because we, we see the person and the person doesn't seem so well put together. Whether it's dress or speech or outward behavior, I mean, we, we make a lot of assumptions about other people. And, and we think we're okay because we're not as bad as the person next to us. <laughs> but where do we really stand with God? To have a right view of ourselves, we must see ourselves in the light of God's perfect holiness. We don't compare ourselves with one another or others, but we view ourselves in light of God. And only then, only then, will we realize that we're all in the same boat, friends. If, if, if we see ourselves in the light of God, if we realize that we are all in the same boat, all of us, without exception, are fallen, broken sinners. 
and all of us have failed to glorify God as we ought. And, and Jesus challenges our self-righteous pride by calling us to see ourselves as we should. You know, but, but he does that not to crush us with despair. You know, Jesus is the good, he's the great physician. It's like a really good doctor that you go to. And if you go to a good doctor, uh, you hope that the good doctor will be honest with you. You don't go to a doctor expecting or wanting a diagnosis that makes you feel good about yourself, but, it, but isn't true. But rather, you, you go to a doctor and say, yeah, please tell me the truth. It may be hard, but I want to know the truth. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Right? He, he challenges us not to crush us, but He wants us to see our sins so that we see our need for Him. Otherwise, why would we go to the doctor unless we know we're sick? Right? The good news is that Jesus is a saviour for sinners. He died on the cross to bear God's judgment against sinners like us. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. You know, you see in this text, when Jesus encounters sinners, something unexpected happens. Something surprising happens. Because we think that, that you know, the holy gets contaminated with the unholy, but not here. Jesus is not, contam he's not corrupted by our sin. Instead, he makes the unclean clean. Right? If you read the Old Testament, you know that holiness is never contagious. It's unholiness that's contagious in the Old Testament. That's why people kept themselves separate. But here we have the opposite. Holiness is contagious. The holiness of Jesus is contagious. And when we draw near to Him, you know, it's, like, it's like the woman in the story who touches the fringe of his clothing, and she's made clean. Wow, it's contagious holiness. So we draw near to him. Instead of running from him, we, we draw near to him and praise God that he draws near to us. So we can draw near to Jesus, friends. We, we don't have to be dishonest. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to hide behind a veneer of respectability, but we can draw near to Him honestly, openly, and say to Him, help, help. Have, have we done that? Have we done that even this past week? Have, have we drawn near to Him and, and just cried out to Him, help, help? Now, I, I saw this booklet at the book table downstairs. And it's a very appropriate one. It, it, the title is, I Feel Ashamed. And I'd like to commend it to us. You know, it's, it's for sale downstairs after the service. And, and maybe there's shame in our hearts that we haven't dealt with. But Jesus says, come. Don't wait. Come. Draw near to me. You know, Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to Repentance. You know, I love, I love the, the, the two stanzas from the song, Come Ye Sinners. It says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you wait, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. 
Let not conscience let you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. You know, all the fitness He requires is for us to feel our need of Him. So come, friends. Second point in our text, scandalous grace challenges our self-confidence in religious traditions. As as the story moves on, the the next thing that Jesus has to deal with is a concern about his disciples' seeming lack of piety. Some wonder why Jesus' disciples do not fast, unlike the disciples of John and the Pharisees. So they ask him, right? How come your disciples don't do what other people do? it's It's a rather pointed comment. Because this comment implies that Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself were not very religious. You know, the Old Testament, to be sure, commanded fasting actually just once a year. You know, so in the Old Testament, there's only one commanded fast, and it happens once a year during the annual Day of Atonement. And, and that fast was meant to express sorrow and mourning over one's sin. So you fast before the Day of Atonement. But over time, more fasts were added to Israel's religious calendar. And then by the time you get to the Pharisees, the Pharisees themselves fasted twice a week. And fasting became known to be a sign of, relig- of uh, religious piety. Right? So if, if you are a pious person, you would fast, and the more, the better. Right? Religious teachers and their disciples were expected to fast regularly, at least twice a week. So so imagine this, it's scandalous that Jesus and his followers were not fasting, but instead they were feasting. So so you imagine the offense that causes in that religious circle. But so how does Jesus kind of interact with that? Uh, You know, as he faces this comment, hey, how come you don't fast? How come your disciples don't fast? You know, he doesn't enter into a religious debate over the technicalities of fasting. You know, it doesn't do that at all. Instead, Jesus says these rather stunning words. Right? You've got to listen to this. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Yeah, think about that. You know, imagine you go to, a, you know, yesterday we had a wedding here, right? And, and you, we all know that a wedding service can't begin unless who shows up? the bride and the bridegroom, right? Why? Because they are the most important people on that day. You know, if, 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 you, if, if you have a wedding service and you start the service before the bride and the groom show up, I mean, it's really, really strange, right? You can't have a wedding without the, the two most important people showing up. So, so think about Jesus' remarks, right? When he says, can, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What's he saying? He's saying, I am the most important person here. And, and the way you think about fasting, you have to contend with me because I'm the most important person here. So you notice he doesn't enter into a religious debate over, oh, should you fast? How many days? How long should you fast for? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't go into any of that at all. He's saying, look at me. That, that's his reply to them. But he goes on to say, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Jesus says that the practice of fasting has to revolve around Him. No one else. Him. And you think, well, who does Jesus think He is? 
You know, in the Old Testament, God describes himself in various places as the bridegroom of his people. And salvation is likened to marriage. And the prophet Isaiah, for example, says, You shall no more be called, be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight. My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And God also promises a great feast when he comes to save his people. And again, Isaiah says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So Jesus' reply is a very profound one. It's a very significant one. When he says, can the, can the guests fast? Or the bridegroom is with them. He's saying, I am the bridegroom. I am the promised one. I'm the one who brings all these Old Testament promises together in myself. He's the bridegroom who has come to save. So Jesus is saying, because I'm here, because I've come, my coming should be celebrated with feasting, not mourned with fasting. Therefore, debating over fasting and religious traditions completely misses the point. All, all this argument over the technicalities of religious practices, it misses the point. It ignores the fact that the bridegroom is here, that he has come. You know, sometimes you, you attend a wedding dinner. You know, I've, I've been to those and I've had this experience where you know, the, the bride and groom are on the stage and, and they're giving a speech. And you know, on, on the fringes of the dinner, people are still eating and talking. Right? And you think, oh, how rude. <laughs> right? Like no one's listening to the bridegroom and, and the bride while, while they're trying to give, you know, say a few words and, and say thank you. And everyone's just doing their own thing, talking. I mean, that's exactly what's happening here. Right? You know, Jesus has come, the bridegroom is here. He said, hey, you guys should celebrate. And everyone is still arguing among themselves over whether or not you should fast. You imagine, you know, how rude. <laughs> right? They're completely ignoring the fact that the bridegroom is here. You know, the, the Pharisees should have celebrated the coming of God's promised Messiah. Instead, they accuse him of being a glutton and drunkard because he ate with sinners of all people. But the Pharisees care more about their own religious traditions than they care about rejoicing in Jesus. I think this text warns us that it is possible to have a lot of religion without actually having Jesus. Think about that, right? It's possible to have a lot of religion without having Jesus. It's possible to love religion without loving Jesus. How can we tell? How can we tell if that's us? I think one of the signs that we love religion rather than loving Jesus is the lack of joy. Not, I'm not, not talking about a circumstantial kind of happy, clappy kind of uh, happiness, but, but real joy. 
a, a genuine rejoicing in the Saviour? Do, do we think Christianity is just about doing religious things like reading our Bibles, praying, doing our quiet times, going to church, getting involved in all kinds of ministries? Is that the sum total of Christianity for us? Or is being a Christian about trusting in, resting in, depending on a Saviour who has come for us, not because we have performed well, but because we are helpless and we need saving? Is that how we understand Christianity? Paul says in Romans, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How are we rejoicing in the Lord today? Are we rejoicing in the Lord? Are we growing to cherish Christ more and more because we see more and more of ourselves and our own brokenness and our own weakness and sinfulness? Are we becoming more humble, more amazed that Jesus should die for a sinner like me? What about fasting? Should we still fast? I mean, Jesus says fasting is appropriate when the bridegroom is taken away, and he means his death on a cross. So between Jesus' death and his resurrection, that's when his disciples will mourn and fast. But now that Jesus is risen from the dead, we, we don't fast and mourn in that way anymore, do we? We don't fast simply to observe a religious tradition or practice. Rather, if we fast, we fast to express our eager longing for Jesus and His return. It, it's all centered on Jesus, right? So fasting is, a, is an expression of worship and dependence on Jesus. Fasting reminds us that we do not live by bread alone, but by the one who is the bread of life. And now that Jesus has come, the new age of God's salvation is already here. The new has come, the old is past, so the new and the old cannot mix. Jesus says we can't fix a tear on an old garment by sewing on a piece of cloth from a new garment. It will only make the tear worse. We can't put new wine into old wineskins because the new wine will ferment, produce gas that will expand the old skins and finally burst them. Because old skins are brittle, and they can't take that expansion. You, know, you don't send a new car to a workshop and then tell them to put in old spare parts into the car. It only makes things worse. So Jesus says to us, I'm here, the bridegroom is here. The new age of God's salvation has come. The new wine of the gospel cannot be put into the old container of our religious customs and traditions. Jesus did not come to merely supplement our religious performance. Jesus didn't come to merely fill the gaps of our lives. Jesus didn't come to just patch up the holes in our self-righteousness. No, we've got to take that and, and throw it out, right? And then look to Jesus who has come. You, you can't mix the old and the new. You know, because of our pride, we may be tempted to cling to the old ways. Right? We, we prefer the old wine. That's what he says in verse 39. The old is good. I like it. I'm used to it. But friends, only Jesus can save and sanctify us. That's the good news of the new age of the gospel. The grace of God has appeared. This grace is scandalous. 
but He's come for us. So I want to close with this reflection as we think about this from the New City Catechism. The first question of the New City Catechism asks, what is our only hope in life and death? Now ask yourself that. What is your only hope in life and death? Is it your own righteousness? Is it your religious performance? Your dependence on tradition and customs that you've been so habituated by? What is your only hope in life and death? And meditate on this answer that we are not our own. We're not our own. But we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Friends, the, the good news is that the great physician has come. Come to Him. Come to Him. Cling to Him. You know, in, a, in moments, we'll be singing this song. I just want to read out this verse from the song that we'll be singing in closing. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord God, we do, we do thank you and praise you for the gift of your grace. Father, we thank you for your Son, whom you have sent uh, by your grace and by your love. Father, you have acted in supreme mercy, and you have shown grace to the undeserving. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are the Saviour for sinners. We thank you that you are the great physician of souls. You are the one who rescues us in spite of who we are. Oh, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that we can come to you honestly, openly, transparently with our sins, no longer hiding, but rather we can come to you and find in you true grace and mercy. So Jesus, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit. We pray that you would open our hearts now by your Spirit, that your Spirit would move powerfully to draw us near to you, Help us to come, Lord, that we might know you, that our hearts will be changed, that our lives will be transformed, that we would be filled with a, a great appreciation for your grace and that we would be eager to speak of your grace to others as well and to, to extend that same grace to others as we are patient and loving towards them. So help us, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.